The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. Uh, we are in Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, and I'm really excited to be hosting what is our first Behind the Headlines event of 2022. Uh, Behind the Headlines is, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, uh, the Hub's signature public discussion series. It's supported by the John Pollard Foundation. And in this week between the centenary of the publication of Joyce's Ulysses uh, and Valentine's Day, we're asking the question, are we falling out of love with Dublin? The question isn't a trivial one. Uh, it arises in the context of the new Dublin City Development Plan. And I know that many people listening will have engaged with the consultation process, uh, which has a few more days to run on the new plan. And of course, we're also thinking about the context of the several uh, con controversial planning applications, uh, uh, decisions and campaigns that have hit the headlines in recent months. But this evening, what we want to do is to go behind those headlines and think less about specific cases uh, and more about the longer term landscape of the Dublin story to hear about the history of Dublin planning uh, and to think about what a civic vision means for us today and also to speculate if we can on how planning our cityscape might be improved in the future. Well, to address these and related topics, I'm joined by five guest panelists. I want to welcome them, and I'm going to introduce them now in the order that you'll hear them speaking. Uh, we're going to start with David Dixon, and uh, David is, of course, a very well-known uh, Irish historian. He's currently Research Fellow Emeritus in the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, and as Professor in Modern History, at Trinity, David has published widely on Irish urban history, and his books include Dublin, The Making of a Capital City from 2014, and then recently, The First Irish Cities, An 18th Century Transformation, and that was just published last year. And David's also an active member of the Irish Modern Urban History Group. We'll then hear from Valerie Mulvin, Valerie is co-founder of the Dublin-based McCullough Mulvin Architects firm, which is responsible for many landmark sustainable buildings in Dublin and across Ireland. And indeed, I don't have to look any further than the building I'm currently sitting in, the Trinity Long Room Hub, the beautiful building uh, that uh, was designed by Valerie with Neil McCulloch for us. And it's a terrific example of what innovative contemporary architecture can do, even in a traditional space. Valerie is also an author, and last year she published Approximate Formality, Morphology of Irish Towns, which looks at Irish towns and town planning, and I think showcases Valerie's 
particular expertise in understanding different scales of urban space. Owen Keegan joins us next, and Owen was appointed Dublin City Council Chief Executive in uh, 2013, having served as a County Manager of Dunleary Rathdown County Council from 2006. Previous to that, he's been Assistant City Manager and also, uh, and I sympathise with him, Director of Traffic. Can't have been easy. Owen is by background an economist. He's worked in the Department of Finance and with Esri. He's also spent time in the Department of the Environment uh, and he holds degrees in public administration, in economics and in civil engineering. And I'm really delighted to have Owen with us this evening. No one is better placed at the moment to speak to us on the challenges of navigating Dublin's development and also to outline the protocols of what public engagement in the planning process actually means for the city plan. We're then joined by Owen O'Canawan, and Owen, welcome back to Trinity. Owen was uh, an undergraduate here. He is well known as an award-winning traditional musician and uh, as an activist with People Before Profit. But Owen is also part of the Dublin is Dying group, which many of you will know has been campaigning against the proposed hotel development at the site of the cobblestone in Smithfield. And this is one of several grassroots and activist movements which are now taking real responsibility for Dublin's cultural and public spaces on behalf of a generation which, uh, as I don't think we need the headlines to tell us, is feeling increasingly sidelined from a city uh, that they uh, are, live in by ludicrous housing costs and by alienating commercial and investment priorities. And finally, we have Frank MacDonald joining us. Uh, Frank joined the Irish Times in 1979. He became environment correspondent and then environment editor in 2000. And much of his career has been dedicated to writing about planning and development in Dublin, from the demolition of parts of the city, uh, the historical city, to the more recent impact of the curse of Airbnb. And his numerous books range from The Destruction of Dublin, published in 1985, to uh, recently A Little History of the Future of Dublin, which was published last year, and a book uh, which I think confronts not only some of the damage which has been done to the city in the past, but also the steps we now need to take to avoid everything from catastrophic flooding right through to simply the prospect of Dublin losing its distinct character and becoming what Frank calls in the book an anywhere city. Uh, so those are our panellists, and they're all going to speak for, uh, we've only got about eight to nine minutes for each of them, which is no time at all, um, but we want to save time so we can open up to discussion with you, the audience. So please do put your questions or your comments in the Q&A function uh, at the bottom of the Zoom screen. Uh, you'll need to be brief, but please do, if you can, uh, say your name, say something about yourself, where you're from, or if you're representing a particular group. And if you're watching on Facebook, uh, you can also put your question in the comments section and we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. If you're on Twitter, please tweet. We're using the handle at TLR Hub. 
and the hashtag Hub Matters. And Francesca will put those in the chat function for everybody uh, so that you have them. Before we start this evening, I want to thank our panelists uh, in advance for volunteering to speak this evening. This is a topic about which people are rightly passionate. Uh, and we expect this discussion to be robust, but also, of course, as always, respectful. So let's kick off with the great words of uh, the great Joni Mitchell. Have we paved paradise to put up a parking lot? Or can we fall back in love with Dublin and even with Dublin City Council? And first of all, does the history of this subject shed any light on our contemporary situation. Uh, so on that, I'll hand over first of all to David Dixon. Well, thank you very much, Eve, for the invitation to be the kind of tame historian. Uh, and uh, I think I'll speak briefly before uh, the fun really starts. But I am very glad to have an opportunity to uh, begin with a, a kind of a backward view before we take uh, a view of the future near and far. Well, as you said, we're in the centenary year, uh, not just of Ulysses, but of Patrick Abercrombie's canonical report, Dublin of the Future. Very few copies of that volume survive. It's almost as rare as the first editions of Ulysses. It was actually written before the Great War, principally the work of a young lecturer in Liverpool, an architect and pioneer in the, the new field of town planning. The future of Dublin, 1922, is a plain speaking document with a breadth of vision you'd never find in a modern strategic plan. It sets out how the city should develop as a capital of home rule Ireland, building on past strength and the financial freedom that home rule would allow. It was brimming with optimism and the belief that Dublin could be a beautiful world city once again that the new government would over time be able to cut across property rights and vested interests and address public conservatism, what with new streets, a new epicenter for traffic, uh, new public monuments, and a vast Catholic cathedral atop of Capel Street. Most importantly though, it believed that the tenement crisis would be addressed by thinning out of the inner city uh, with the building of low density suburbs uh, involving upwards of 64,000 people who would be transplanted uh, from the inner city. And after Abercrombie's plan came the, the Dublin Civic Survey of 1925, a kind of doomsday book of the city as it then stood, another very handsome volume that was the work of the city architect, Horace O'Rourke, who saw it as a vital step towards a full-scale city plan. But what happened? Little enough. By the 1960s, when Miles Wright and a new generation of professional planners uh, were getting to work, Abercrombie's vision for the creation of a new Dublin was a quaint and distant memory, as indeed were the other reports and plans of the 1920s. By the 1960s, a lot had of course changed, but the coming of statutory planning for Dublin and its region had been painfully slow. Thus, when a hugely scaled down uh, version of the future of Dublin appeared in 1941 as a kind of draft city plan, it, like the earlier work, gathered dust. So why? Why did the, the great plans of Abercrombie and the early city planners have so little impact in their own time? Well, first, let's dig much deeper into Dublin's history. 
who in the past had control in determining the shape and use of urban space. Was it the state, Dublin Castle? Was it the parliament? Was it the corporation? And who controlled Dublin Corporation? Was it the powerful merchant princes or the generality of traders? In fact, there have always been multiple stakeholders shaping their bits of the old city, with development on the ground being driven most of the time by private capital, market forces, and speculative ambition, even far back in time. Yet there were two or three moments of real systemic change in the city's character. First, during the Restoration Viceroyalty of the First Duke of Ormond, a familiar story, the creation of the Phoenix Park, of St. Stephen's Green, the opening up of the Liffey Keys, the Royal Hospital, Kilmainham, etc. Not the result of a coherent plan, but the application of spatial ideas drawn from London and Paris and championed by a powerful viceroy. A second moment was in the late 18th century, the high noon of the wide streets commissioners. They drastically reordered the central street system and enforced architectural standards, also overseeing proposed new street plans of private developers. The commission lasted for near a century, but its period of innovation and disruptive intervention was actually quite short. A third moment, I think, was in the 1850s and 60s, as the arrival of railways reshaped the city's urban villages, slicing up some, marginalizing others, and accelerating the middle-class move to the suburbs. That coincided, coincided with a reformed city corporation with enhanced powers that successfully addressed uh, long-running sores, uh, notably the city's water supply, uh, the management of food markets, uh, some impact on sanitation, and old-style traffic management. Now, in each of those, mo those moments, I think we can detect three ingredients. Fresh thinking about urban space and how cities should work, a strong cycle of economic recovery, and thirdly, the concentration of political power that would cut through competing vested interests and subordinate authority. And it's particularly evident, I think, with the, the wide streets commissioners, shaped by international neoclassicism, by a strong urban economy, and by a handful of politicians who for a time enjoyed almost untram untrammeled power in the city. I'm thinking here particularly of John Beresford. Then in the 1850s, new thinking about public health and transportation and a post-famine economic bounce promised much. Yet despite several strategically minded Lord Mayors, the concentration of political authority then uh, to pursue a change agenda was, was not sufficient, was not, was not really sufficient. And I think this is most evident in the city's failure to win control of the new suburbs with Rathmines, becoming the first of a string of autonomous townships who were able to keep control of their own taxes and thereby weaken the city's finances. And the, and the city corporation's failure to get its boundaries extended was indeed a high-level political failure. Which brings us back to the 1920s. Well, no shortage then of new ideas. We have our integrated vision of, for the city with Abercrombie. But what of the economy? Well, the international economy was worsening in the early days of the new state, and uh, government, the new government was desperately seeking financial stability. Yet, one might say, if it could, could afford the great Ardner Crusher scheme and the Shannon, surely it could afford a massive capital program for the 
the new capital city. Well, Cosgrave found the money for the costly rebuilding of the Custom House and the forecourts, and his government abolished Dublin Corporation in 1924, three commissioners being installed to run the city. At first sight, direct rule like that could be read as a sign that the government was cutting through all the vested interests, blocking change in the city, whether rebel councillors or ex-unionist suburbanites, in order to reshape it along Abercrombian lines and to sort out the housing crisis as well. Now, in fact, narrower political motives explain the six-year suspension because the corporal was seen by the then government as really a noisy sounding board for their political enemies. Uh, and the commission was a means to close all that noise down. But the city commissioners came in, uh, notably Seamus Murphy, welcomed their freedom from democratic accountability and were efficient innovators in a smallish way. And it was during their time that Herbert Sims, working class Londoner, veteran of the Western Front, and a graduate of Abercrombie's uh, department makes an appearance. Where Sims's boss O'Rourke, the city architect uh, from 1926, was old school and an outspoken admirer of the 18th century heritage of the city, also a champion of building garden suburbs, Sims, becoming the new housing architect in 1932, was far more open to contemporary urban design, both in England and Holland, and was more acutely focused on social need. Thus, while O'Rourke, through the 20s and 30s, moans on about the lack of municipal support, the problems with his housing committee, the lack of staff, the absence of an aesthetic culture in the city, his deputy Sims just got on with the job of delivering public housing. Keeping a modest profile, Sims is now known to have signed off on some 17,000 new housing units during his time in office, over 16 or 17 years, with 21 inner city apartment blocks and to have shaped the detailed plans for Crumlin and Cabra. Tragically, he took his own life in 1948 because, he said in a parting note, he was losing his mind from years of overwork. And it's only now, 70 years after his death, that Sims has become something of a heroic figure among architectural historians. So did either Sims or O'Rourke draw benefit from Abercrombie's great plan? The mantra of working to the plan must have helped to push things forward in those days. Yet the degree of change during the 20s and 30s was a great disappointment to Abercrombie's Dublin admirers. His 1922 vision would have been both disruptive and expensive. And there was no champion within government for remolding the city at a time when public finances answered to other priorities. Of course, great changes were occurring with the rise of the bus and the motor car on Dublin streets not fully anticipated by Abercrombie in 1922. But the greatest positive change, certainly by the time of Sims's death in 1948, was the huge growth in social housing and the partial eclipse of the tenements. Yet this was less, we have to say, because of the planner's advocacy than the pressure of electoral politics. And of course, the unspoken fear of social unrest or worse, if the inner city housing crisis crisis hadn't been fully addressed. But I think now back to the present, and can I hand over to Valerie? Sorry, am I unmuted? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, David, that was great. And um, I, I'll continue on and just talking about 
that love letter of James Joyce publishing Ulysses in 1922, imagined Dublin Bay into our consciousness in a way um, from the Martello Tower in Sandy Cove right out to Hoth Head. So he invented that lovely idea in Dublin of a semicircle facing the sun and he made that into the poetry that we all know is there in Dublin. And part of the vision of the Abercrombie plan that David, David has explained so cogently there uh, of the same date of 1922 was actually to build out on that space of the bay and in a way turning away from the historic city. And actually there have been recent calls to do the same as a kind of a magic bullet to solve uh, on a grand scale the solution to our housing price crisis. I live in Dublin and many people do because of Dublin Bay. It's such a wonderful environment. It's nature wrapped up by the city. That's quite unique. We hardly think about it, but it's magical. The 18th century city embracing the bay. And aside from the obvious biodiversity losses we'd have if we reclaimed lots of our coast, I think we really should be thinking about Dublin's plans for the future in a different way. We need to embrace what Dublin is and we need to understand its context. So speaking as an architect, I think our challenge now is to be ingenious in a patchwork of tiny ways with all sorts of people involved and out of that to make a new and appropriate vision. We very quickly evolved new ways of thinking since we've lived through a global pandemic. Those thoughts question the old model of continuous globalization and continuous expansion. And a new plan for Dublin, in my view, needs to be about small scale, brilliant ideas in all kinds of places. No magic bullet, no grand gesture, just imagination using what's there and being really innovative with it and imagining it into something tremendous. And most of all, understanding we're inheriting a very important, unique cultural landscape that we should operate in with great care. When I was working on the book about the remarkable spaces we have in Irish towns that Eve mentioned at the beginning, it became clear to me that they are instant environments full of character, identity, materiality. They're containers of space. They can be reimagined to make new communities, and to solve, to contribute to solving anyway, our housing problems around the country. All that vacant property, empty upper floors, housing is probably the most appropriate and viable use for that existing building stock. It's so sustainable to keep what's there, to upgrade it, make it fit for purpose, and we're enlivening whole communities with new families. We are all, as architects, trained to think about this kind of problem in very innovative ways. And Dublin is susceptible to exactly the same analysis. We can vector in on tiny pieces and see them as part of a patchwork of neighborhoods. And that goes back to how Dublin developed over time and through the 18th and 19th centuries. So what I think we need is to come up with patient and sensitive and sustainable ways of reimagining our city as a cultural space, a place of mixed up things, not just a solution to a one dimensional problem, but a plan which takes on the anonymous and the significant, something that could make our streets whole, and our space is complete and active again. And great social impact can come out of the smallest of ideas, three houses here, 20 houses there. Getting to grips with the housing crisis is an incremental thing, not a big gesture. And it, to me, it could start with what already exists. So using upper floors, renovating blocks, reconfiguring roofs and returns, adding to them in the right way that understands the grain of Dublin. It's important to make space to work like this. So Dublin was a huge city in the 18th century. There's no reason why we couldn't target over a particular period of time, long ignored parts of the fabric of the 18th and 19th century, where it still exists area by area and bring it back from the brink, house by house, street by street. Many of these buildings and spaces currently have no legislative protection. It would need active promotion by everyone in city council, 
It would need flexibility, particularly from the fire department, who can be overcautious. It would need flexibility from the banks to lend money to people to do non-standard things, like making apartments within beautiful buildings and the streets we have, in particular the north inner city, just like the rest of Europe. And height is not always the answer to things. If you look at Paris, if you have a coffee on your holidays on the roof of the Pompidou Centre, and you look out, you're looking at a flat line of rooftops that are six or seven storeys high, interrupted only by the Montparnasse Tower. La Défense is way out to one side, but the city has a coherence. And that's what I think we're in danger of losing in Dublin. We could all be working building by building, street by street. Joyce used to send letters home to say things like, is Sweeney's chemist on the corner of Lincoln Place still going? Or what's the name of the undertakers on Lombard Street? And he created a totally authentic picture, a vision of Dublin by working with tiny fragments of the city of his memory. And that's what he did. He, he recreated that by tiny, tiny details. And in our office, when we're working on a project in the city, it's the same. It's like working on a piece of geography, really. We try to add elements or take advantage of things that have disappeared to create new versions of them a new landscape of the imagination, if you like, grounded in the existing one. And we love working with old buildings and making radical interventions into them. Sometimes they're small projects, sometimes larger, but they've the same rootedness in working with scale and grain. And what we're interested in is the potential to make quiet, autonomous fragments which value the bits of historic fabric and add to it while challenging your imagination with something fantastic, something of the place. And I'll mention just two of them. One, the dental hospital, say, in Lincoln Place, where interventions that we made ensured that the, the, the dental hospital could stay in the city. So they got a new library and little pods on the rooftop and new workspaces on lower levels linked with the timber-lined ramps and passageways. As Neil McCullough famously said in his film, Ariel, made for Open House in 2020, it's the sort of intervention there should be hundreds of in a city like Dublin, where you're passing on the top of a bus and you see something through a window, like a piece of jewellery inside, and you say, hmm, I wonder what that is. Another is 15 Bachelors Walk, where a tiny Georgian building on the Keys, which had all its innards taken out in the 70s, we refurbished that, making a forum space for discussions and films between ground and first floor, and basement rather, and meeting spaces overhead for Irish Architecture Foundation. Now that was a project that Dublin City Council came on board with and helped save. And there are many more opportunities where Dublin City Council maybe could take property within its control and make them into pilot projects for, for example, housing. And for example, their, their project of a few years ago for uh, social housing within some of the buildings on Mountjoy Square, brilliant. And way back, as David was mentioning, the state in 1922 had inherited enormous issues of social deprivation and brought itself, I would say, to honorable exhaustion trying to deal with it in its early years. And with the corporation, desperately building housing for people under the brilliant Herbert Sims that we've, we've heard about. And those new housing blocks inspired by the latest ideas in Dutch housing, which are still being used successfully today. They might need a bit of energy upgrading, but the ideas are right for the scale of the city. So they're quite different to the grandiose vision of the Abercrombie plan in that they're built on tiny plots within the historic, the, the historic city and they respond to its grain. And a final point I'd make is that a whole generation of people have done lots of traveling. They've lived all over the world and they're not satisfied with the model of living in semi-Ds in, in far-flung suburbs to live in when they come back. They want the authentic experience of living in a real city. So to make the kind of approach I'm talking about visible and to encourage developers to see what can be achieved in small ways, I'd love to propose that many architects 
particularly young architects, are commissioned by the City Council, for example, to work on small projects, pilot projects for housing all over the place. I'd love procurement to be quicker and less monolithic. It could happen if we interpreted the rules a bit differently. I'd love the Department of Housing to catch up with the cost of building in the inner city, which is more expensive than building on a green field. But that's what we all want, not to have our city made, as Frank calls it, into anywhere, but to keep it individual and small-scaled and personable and part of a neighbourhood. And if that was the case, how could we fall out of love with a Dublin that was built like that? So I'll pass on now to Owen. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Valerie. Um, and very difficult to argue with anything you're advocating there. Uh, the future development of Dublin is a matter of major and legitimate public interest and indeed concern. Any event that gives this important topic of public airing is to be welcomed. And I want to thank the organisers of this evening's event for inviting me to participate and giving me an opportunity uh, to outline the role of the City Council and the City Council's development plan in the future development of the city. I, I just want to make it clear at the outset that I'm speaking in a personal capacity and I am not representing either the elected members or the executive of the council. Uh, I was somewhat intrigued by the reference to falling out of love with Dublin in the title to this evening's event. I am unsure if this is intended to imply that the citizens of Dublin have or are falling out of love with their city. In my experience, most Dubliners have always been both passionately in love with aspects of their city and out of love with other aspects of it at the same time. The invitation to this evening's event also draws attention to the fact that this year marks the centenary of the publication of the Dublin of the Future Plan prepared by Patrick Abercrombie and others. Uh, the Abercrombie Plan is often presented with some justification as a bold and imaginative response to the conditions, especially the chronic housing conditions prevailing in Dublin in the early part of the 20th century. It certainly contained many, many grandiose and expensive proposals for civic improvement, transport infrastructure upgrades and extensive land reclamation in Dublin Bay, almost all of which fell by the wayside. It also proposed the development of the suburbs of Crumlin, Cabra and Merino based on the low density garden city movement idea in vogue at the time in England. While the plan's proposals for suburban development are often lauded, there is no doubt in my mind that the city has paid a high price for decades of suburbanization as advocated by Abercrombie in 20, 1922 and enthusiastically embraced by generations of Dubliners since then. Uh, the Abercrombie plan had one particular virtue, which unfortunately is not replicated in the current draft development plan, namely its relative brevity and accessibility. It consisted of a mere 59 pages of text compared with over 1,250 pages in the main report and appendices to the draft plan. Alas, in this important respect, the draft plan is much closer to Ulysses than Abercrombie. I want to turn out to the role of the development plan in shaping the future development of the city. The plan sets out the Council's comprehensive land use and development control policies. In doing this, it brings a degree of certainty to the development process. At its simplest level, the plan consists of a detailed written statement and a series of land use maps that describe the City Council's requirements and aspirations for the development of different areas of the city. A great strength of the plan is that it provides for very significant public consultation in the plan formulation process. In addition to pa the power to make the plan is a reserved function of the elected members. While the council executive undoubtedly exercised some influence on the process, the real power is exercised by councillors who in my experience take their plan making responsibilities very seriously. 
Councillors are very responsive to the concerns of existing residents who elect them. This is perfectly understandable, but it does raise the issue as to whether the concerns of other interest groups, and especially those of prospective future city residents, are adequately represented. The current draft plan has been prepared against the background of significant challenges facing Dublin. These include the impacts of the COVID pandemic, including the growth in re remote hybrid working and the increased pressure on physical retail activity, uncertainty regarding the longer term fallout from Brexit, the need to respond to climate change and the urgent need to address acute difficulties in the housing market. A key objective of the plan is to ensure as, as far as possible that the city develops in an inclusive way which will improve the quality of life for all and thereby ensure that Dublin remains an attractive place where people will continue to want to live, work and visit. Is it estimated uh, that over the planned period to 2028, the city council area will have to accommodate over 40,000 new residential units and just under 70% of these will have to be social and affordable units. The plan proposes that this will be, proposes that this will be achieved to the ongoing consolidation and regeneration of core underutilized brownfield sites and through sustainable densification and sensitive infield development. It is envisaged that Dublin will become a more compact city with a network of sustainable neighborhoods which will have a range of facilities and offer a choice of tenures and housing mixes. In the limited time available to me, I want to outline how the draft plan is responding to three current issues that are of major public concern. The first issue is the proliferation of built to rent or BTR developments. In the city council area, nearly all, nearly all planning applications for apartment development are BTR schemes, most of which are built to minimum national standards. While BTR development certainly has a role, the near total dominance of this typology has adverse long-term consequences for the creation of sustainable communities, which the City Council considers requires a wider choice of housing types and mixed tenures in the city. Key policy changes in the draft plan to limit BTR development include a requirement that 40% of units in schemes over 100 units must be designed to the higher build to sell standard restricting the development of BTR schemes to appropriate locations only, and a presumption against the proliferation over concentration of BTR in any one area. The second issue is the loss of cultural venues. Culture is a universal and fundamental part of human experience and plays a central role in defining us as a society and indeed in defining Dublin as a city. However, rapid economic growth is having a negative impact on the affordability and accessibility of spaces to undertake art and cultural expression. The draft plan seeks to counteract this uh, through a dedicated chapter dealing with culture, promoting development of a number of cultural clusters across the city, requiring that new large-scale developments provide at least 5% floor space for community arts and cultural uses, and requiring where demolition or replacement of a cultural space is proposed, that any new development must reaccommodate a cultural use with the same or increased area of space. The third issue is how we can ensure that architecture and urban design respond to changing social needs. There is an increased focus in the draft plan on the need to create well-designed urban neighborhoods, healthy placemaking, and more livable communities that provide for the needs of all with a range of adaptable housing typologies. The draft plan makes a strong emphasis or places a strong emphasis on the need to encourage neighborhood development designed in accordance with the principles of the 15-minute city, which protects and enhances the quality of the built environment and is designed to the highest standards and which supports community well-being. 
I'm fairly satisfied that the broad objectives and aspirations of the draft plan are appropriate, uh, and I'm reasonably confident that they enjoy considerable public support. However, the extent to which the draft plan's vision and aspirations are realized will depend on a whole range of factor, factors, most of which are outside the control of the City Council. I want to comment briefly on three of these factors. The first is that the City Council is required to have regard to ministerial guidelines. Specific planning policy requirements, or SPPRs, take precedence over the development plan. And in this regard, the Urban Development and Building Height Guidelines of 2018 and the Design Standards for New Apartments of uh, 2020 have proved especially controversial. The second factor is the role of onboard Panola, which has shown an increasing disregard for the provisions of the City Development Plan and indeed of the Docklands STZ Plan in exercising its very considerable planning functions generally, and especially in assessing uh, strategic housing development applications. Thankfully, however, the board's approach appears to have come at least partially unstuck, as indeed has the whole SHD process, as a consequence of the very significant increase in recourse to judicial review of the board's decisions. And the third factor is the fact that the draft plan will also be subject to review by the independent planning regulator. And it remains to be seen what impact this will have. Given the importance of Dublin in the national economy and the focus of councillors on the concerns of existing residents, it is perhaps not surprising that central government should seek to influence uh, the future development of Dublin via the land use and development control process. Irrespective of the merits or otherwise of these interventions, they have certainly highlighted concerns about the demographic deficit associated with the planning and development process. The final point I want to make is that many of the issues dealt with in the development plan are by their nature controversial. The future development of the city has always generated considerable public interest, robust debate, and very significant difference of opinion. The draft plan represents the city council's best efforts based on the limited powers it has to mediate between these competing interests and positions. Um, while I'm very happy to commend the draft plan, it is very important that we appreciate it is not a panacea for all the issues of concern to Dubliners. Thank you. Sorry, I think I am next here. Um, sorry, apologies, I got, came up, up very suddenly for me. Um, hi everyone, um, yeah, look, um, I am not an expert, uh, nor will I claim to be, I think obviously on a panel of uh, very, very knowledgeable people uh, tonight. So, um, uh, but I am hoping that I can um, provide something to, to, uh, to this discussion. Um, and uh, I, I'm just going to start by, by saying, I, I think, you know, I, I'm going to speak in, in very gen general terms, I suppose. I think when we're um, trying to imagine what uh, Dublin could be like and looking at what, what it's like at the moment, I think we have to ask ourselves, for, for whom does the city work at the moment? Who benefits from the current model of development? And uh, to whom does the city actually belong? Uh, because when I think, I think when you start asking these questions and looking at um, major profits being made by a select few, looking at the lived reality for the vast majority of the people living here. Uh, we're confronted with a system really that, that is prioritizing private profit, profit over the public good and a system that's also fairly undemocratic, I think. Um, and I, I want to talk a bit about culture and cultural spaces and public space later on, but I think it's impossible to talk about the development of uh, Dublin without first talking about housing. Um, obviously, other people have uh, alluded to it, but um, well, here's my take on it. Um, I think we're uh, plagued with a kind of 
neoliberal optimism at the moment um, and neoliberal optimists that basically favor market solutions, uh, which would have us believe that the way to solve the housing crisis is to rely on investment funds and private developers uh, to sell off public land or even to gift public land to private developers and speculators and to tell us constantly that the issue is supply, 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 even though we've seen these same policies fail for the, the last uh, 15 years or so. Um, and I think we have to ask what happens when, as reported today in the media, we hear that um, investment funds or, or cuckoo funds are, are, are outbidding families for homes. Uh, so institutional investors uh, paid up to 32% more for each residence compared to the average household buyer. So I obviously agree that we need some more supply, um, but we have to ask what use is this when it's being snapped up by investment funds in order to rent them out at exorbitant rates. Um, what uses more supply, I think, when, it, when it's completely unaffordable either to rent or to buy for the vast, vast uh, majority of people. So um, I think the solution has to be to build public housing. And I, I, uh, of course, I'm, uh, this is partly, you know, this isn't down to uh, um, the council or anything like this. It's obviously state policy, but the solution uh, uh, has to be to build public housing on, on, on public land on a massive scale, as was done in the 1930s and 40s when the country was far poorer. We also need mandatory rent reductions. Uh, and we, I think we need uh, punitive taxes on uh, land left vacant for speculative purposes. Um, but instead, we kept more of the same, really. And, and um, Owen Keegan spoke about the strategic housing, uh, housing developments, which uh, circumvent the, uh, the planning processes. Uh, I think this is, these are a major issue. Um, I mean, the term strategic housing, housing development seems to me to be a bit of a misnomer because um, there doesn't seem to be very much uh, to be anything very strategic about flinging up you know hundreds of units without first having the infrastructure we need in place the schools the creches the public space you know the local gp service uh, but often when you oppose these uh, developments uh, because you have a vision for something better you're accused of nimbyism uh, you're told just basically to leave it to the private developers to continue their good work um which of course uh, comes out uh, you know it comes at massive profits uh, to, to them. And I think there's a there's a fundamental lack of democracy around all, all of this. Um, the elected councillors have little, very little say in how things are run. Uh, we, we have, again, so-called strategic infrastructure pro, pro, uh, projects that can just be rammed through by management, as was the case for uh, the incinerator, for example, in Ring's End. So you had a ma major campaign against the project, uh, several council motions to oppose the development, uh, but ultimately a decision that didn't rest with the elected officials or the general public, and so it went ahead. Um, and this is the case as well for the massive strategic housing housing products projects of over 100 units. They go straight to a board panel. Um, you know, you, you need a quorum of three people, I think, to approve them, uh, and there's no right of uh, right of uh, appeals. So you have to go to judicial review, which is uh, pro prohibitively uh, expensive. Um, and I think if we look at the coal face of this with, with, with high rents, with lack of affordable housing, with a profitizing housing model, uh, people are really, really struggling. Um, so um, I, I want to go on and just say, you know, I, I did say I'd talk about public and cultural spaces. And I think this leads directly on from the housing issue because uh, the same people are being charged these rents who often have very little living space, no garden, are finding that when they get out of the house, their public and cultural spaces are also under attack. And all of this, I think, is part of the same problem. Um, so I attended a protest at uh, Portobello Plaza last week. That this was, um, uh, this was to do with the hotel being built at the plaza. Um, but actually, it's bad enough that we're, I think, for me anyway, bad enough we're getting another hotel there. But the protest wasn't actually about that. 
it was about the fact that uh, for the next two years, about 75% of the plaza will be closed off to the public for the benefit of the uh, developer. Um, so the cost of the hoarding license to do this uh, was about, I think, 7,900 or so. Somebody worked out that the average a month for this was 657 euro. Um, a few people at the protest who live locally made the point that they had no garden, that this was their, their public space, and that this developer was getting to use it for significantly less than the cost of their monthly rent. Uh, and there was no public consultation about the closure of the plaza for, for, for two years. Um, I think the hotelification of Dublin is another area where we see the city being uh, treated as a, as a playground for investors, rather than a city that ordinary people need to not just survive in, but live and thrive in. Um, it's become a kind of a cliche at this uh, at the point uh, at this point really to to say that the tourists who come to visit Dublin will have nothing else to visit except other hotels. Um, and this is, I think, true. But I also think that we have to insist that the needs of the people who live here most trump tourism and those who want to profit from it. Uh, we must insist that we need more. Uh, we deserve more than just to work and pay rent, and more than just to merely exist in the city. Uh, and I think the reason I've been asked on this panel, not being any kind of uh, expert, is, is to represent. Uh, some of the grassroots campaigning has been going on, obviously, um, so far, a success of the, uh, cobbles, uh, the, the cobblestone campaign, a success of uh, grassroots mobilization and people power. And here is where I, I actually have a lot of hope. Um, I think when people who know and love the cobblestone as an essential cultural and musical hope heard about the proposal to, to build a nine-story hotel on the, uh, on the site, there was, there was shock. But then people started to move, they started to organize. Uh, so we had a protest of about 2,000 people, a major public campaign, over 700 observations made to Dublin City Council, um, resulting that uh, not only did DCC reject the proposals, but they cited the cultural importance of the cobblestone as part of their reason. And here we see how an initially defensive campaign can turn into a fight for a more positive vision. Um, people are having conversations now about what they want, uh, how they want Smithfield Square to be developed, not left, uh, you know, and particularly that street, North King Street, not to be left in derelict in disrepair, but actually to build on the cultural foundation there and to preserve the character of the Georgian buildings on the street. Um, it's coming to towards uh, finishing up here, but I think it's interesting for me to be part of a campaign around a place uh, that has been such a focal point for so many of the great musicians and singers that have written the folk songs and the great social commentary about what's been going on in Dublin and in Ireland over the past century or so. Um, so, you know, you walk through the IFSC, listen to Lisa O'Neill's song, Rock the Machine, about dock workers out of work because of the new machinery being introduced. I can't help thinking, you know, de decades later that that machinery is gone too, and we're in the heartland of kind of financial speculation. You can walk past so many of the old sites that have been sold off. You can think of Liam Weldon's song, Dark Horse on the Wind, a quote from it. Now charlatans wear dead men's shoes. I unrattle dead men's bones. The dust has settled on their tombs. They've stole the very stones. And then more recently, I think one of the best songs of, of the last decade or so, you've got Lancome's Cold Old Fire, which I think does very well to puncture the neoliberal optimism that's been foisted on us. Uh, a song that depicts the reality for so many people who are struggling in this city, but that still has hope. It says, we look for signs that Dublin's heart still beating, that concrete and glass and peelers and masks, they haven't stopped the people from screaming. And I think with nights like the protest at Portobello Plaza last week, where you had 60 people come out on a cold February night, when you see 2,000 people mobilised for the cobblestone and later on have Cayleys on O'Connell Bridge, when you see hundreds out for Moore Street a few weeks ago, you start to see the sparks that could ignite into something more. And I think this is exactly what's needed if we're to challenge the powerful interests of profit from the system, as well as the lack of democracy around what's been done in our city. Uh, in the movements we're building now, I think, lie the shoots of a more democratic system. Uh, I think there's real imagination here 
of the kind lacking from the profiteers trying to make a quick book. And I, I think things are being, beginning to rumble now, things are beginning to bubble up. And if we can get organized and build on these mobilizations, uh, we can start fighting for a better city. Thank you. Hi, um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Eve Patton and her team in Trinity's Long Room Hub for organizing this, uh, this event. Um, it's really uh, been really interesting so far. I'm delighted by what Owen has to say there. And even the other Owen, uh, Owen Keegan, the Chief Executive of Dublin City Council. Um, but I think that the draft plan that's now being considered sh should really carry the planning equivalent of a health warning or in legal terms, um, a caveat, because the high ideals and design standards that are contained in this immense document are heavily compromised and even polluted by the mandatory ministerial guidelines handed down by successive ministers for housing and planning <clears throat> since 2015. Uh, because I have no doubt that the specific planning policy requirements as Owen Keegan has referred to contained in the guidelines have really upended the planning system that we used to have. Um, one of the most serious challenges that the city has faced in the modern era uh, is the commodification of housing in Dublin as a quote, asset class for investment by cash rich private equity funds and institutional investors, mainly from abroad, aided and abetted by the ministerial directives, dumbing down art and design standards to facilitate grossly high density build to rent uh, or BTR schemes. So no longer are apartments being built for sale to owner occupiers or small scale investors as they had been in the past. Instead, younger people in Dublin have been turned into generation rent, denied the prospect of having homes of their own because they're consigned to a, uh, a running on a treadmill, ratcheting up by with ever increasing rents that consume 40% or more of their take home pay. I mean, this is totally unsustainable, but it hasn't happened by accident. It has, let's be very clear about this. It has been engineered by the property lobby and the aptly named planning industrial complex that serves it. The architects, the planning consultants, structural engineers, uh, visualizers, and all the others in this sector uh, who've been earning huge fees for designing generally high-rise and often horrifically dense uh, BTR schemes. The mandatory ministerial directives introduced between 2015 and 2018 all contain specific planning policy requirements that take precedence, as Owen has conceded, uh, over the policies laid down in the democratically adopted Dublin City Development Plan, effectively rendering it no longer worth the paper that it's written on, which I think is really tragic. Under this, the so-called fast track process governing so-called strategic housing developments or SHDs, on board Panola grants permission week after week for high rise BTR schemes that simply wouldn't stand a chance of being approved by the local authorities because these highly dense schemes are the antithesis of proper planning and sustainable development which is meant to be the goal of the whole planning system. And what's happening now really is a classic example of developer-led planning rather than plan-led development, which is what should be happening. Developers are gaming the system 
availing of the ministerial directives that provide for, quote, no restrictions on dwelling mix. So we end up with schemes that are overwhelmingly consist of one bedroom apartments or studios with little or no private amenities. Such schemes simply cannot provide the building blocks for creating sustainable residential neighborhoods in Dublin. The densities involved in terms of unit per acre, per hectare rather, are frighteningly high, as high in some cases as they were in the teeming tenements of the late 19th century and early 20th century. The only beneficiaries are the developers and the, the funds that they're building for. In the meantime, the residential population of the city is being whittled down by the largely uncontrolled proliferation of tourist shortlets via Airbnb and other agencies, even while homeless families are being accommodated in low-grade hotels and hostels. And who's going to be given responsibility for regulating shortlets but Fulcher Ireland, for goodness sake? And that shows that the, that the priority really is tourism rather than housing. I think it's fair to say, and David Dixon outlined it very well earlier on, uh, that we've inherited a great city that benefits enormously from visionary planning in the past, going back to the first Duke of Ormond, the great estates, uh, Gardner and Fitzwilliam, for example, and the wide streets commissioners, who together made Dublin one of the most splendid capital cities in Europe by 1800. Its streets and squares lined with grand houses inter interspersed with fine public buildings. Even in the first half of the 20th century, the city continued to improve and saw the construction from 1922 onwards of the Merino housing estate, followed, as David has referred to it, uh, in the 1930s by Crumlin, Cabra, Finglas and, uh, and other suburban uh, uh, social housing schemes, as well as inner city flat, flat blocks designed by the, in the Amsterdam style by Dublin Corporation's heroic architect uh, in charge of housing, Herb, the late Herbert Sims. Yet even these really great buildings that deserve to be retrofitted and brought up to modern standards were actually threatened with demolition uh, by one former senior official of Dublin City Council. So I think we owe it to those who went before us to look after the city in all of its aspects, including the protection of its human scale against random eruptions of high-rise buildings on the skyline, and also, of course, to protect its indigenous culture as exemplified by the cobblestone pub in Smithfield, the woefully decaying ivy markets in uh, Francis Street, and the unique sense of place of Merchant's Arch, among others. And I think it's time to take a stand on all of this. And, and the most encouraging thing for me is that so many people, including the younger generation, like Ono Canavon, are waking up to what's been going on. And it's interesting just to note that Dublin City Council netted an unprecedented 14,000 euro in fees from the 700 plus obj objectors uh, in the cobblestone case. So I think it's great to see that so many people in Dublin are prepared as I am to fight for proper planning and, to, and sustainable development in the city that was immortalized. So famously worldwide by James Joyce a hundred years ago.
Well, thank you very much, Frank, and, and thanks to all our panelists uh, for speaking so elegantly and, and frankly, but also for keeping to time, which means we have about half an hour uh, to open this to discussion, uh, comments, questions from the audience, lots of questions and comments coming in already in the Q&A. And just a reminder for you, please, to use the Q&A box uh, at the bottom of the screen to put the questions in. Um, I know that there are several people in our very large audience who have written on this topic, uh, either as journalists or as thought leaders or as uh, institutional uh, uh, responsibility people. Um, so uh, please do, if you want to come in, let us know uh, or put a question in. It'd be very good to hear from you. Um, but I think before we go to the, to the general questions, I might give the panel an opportunity just to see if they want to add any points that having heard the other speakers that they think have been passed over or they'd like to amplify. Um, just raise your hands if you'd like to come in, but I might start just with Owen Keegan, just on a, a, a question of, of the plan itself and procedure. And I, I do appreciate, uh, Owen, that you're speaking to us in a personal capacity this evening. But when we are engaged in a, a public consultation process, and very many of us have, have written in and contributed to that consultation, can you reassure us that that process has a meaning? Can you reassure us that there is a procedure which genuinely does take account of that public consultation as part of the planning process? Uh, yes, I can, because uh, I have to sit through very, very long meetings because the members uh, go through line by line and they consider every submission. Now, they're all ordered, etc. cetera, but uh, there are an awful lot of instances where they don't take the advice of the elected officials and they're, or the, you know, the elected or the officials, uh, the unelected officials, and they're perfectly entitled to do that. And that's, you know, I, I'd love to say that they listen to my advice or the advice of the city planning officer, but I have to say they don't. Uh, and that's their prerogative. And they are very, very sensitive to the concerns expressed by members of the public. And a lot of it about their, you know, I mean, we would have had, I think, concerns about BTR, but certainly you know, they pushed us to go further than, I mean, our concern is that the regulator may say we've gone too far and that we're inconsistent with, you know, ministerial guidelines. So, um, but they've been very adamant on a lot of things and they've been very adamant of being given greater protection, things like cultural spaces. So um, it's their plan. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, they decide what they want to do and they're quite happy and frequently ignore the advice they get from planning officials and from myself. Thanks, Owen. And of course, this touches on a word that I'm seeing come up a lot in the questions already, which is democracy. And to what extent are we dealing with, you know, a genuinely democratic process? So I might come back to you on the question of, of this in terms of the limits of uh, Dublin City Council's powers, which you've touched on already. I just want to check, would anyone like to come in from the panel before we go to the general questions? Just raise your hand if you want to add anything. Yeah, Frank, go ahead there. I, I, I just wanted to get back to a really crucial point that Valerie Mulvan made earlier on, that we don't need to be uh, concentrating on building huge schemes, that we can do, we can repair the city and make it more habitable for people by doing small things on a building by building basis. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of Ainger Street, um, where there are several buildings that are just simply boarded up and derelict. I mean, you know, in all probability, there, there, these buildings, some of which date back to the late 17th century, 
um, are being assembled by some developer for some huge scheme or other. Whereas in fact, what is really needed in Angel Street is for buildings to be renovated on uh, one after the other um, as, as, as separate schemes, providing residential accommodation on the upper floors and uh, a retail unit on, at ground floor level. I mean, you know, this is not rocket science. This has been done over generations in other cities in Europe. And we are a European capital city. And the last thing we should do uh, is, to is to allow Dublin to be turned into an anywhere city full of BTR apartment blocks owned by foreign funds. Thanks, Frank. And I, Valerie might want to come in on that because Valerie, I mean, obviously one of the questions people are going to put to you on this, this very attractive idea that we refurbish what's already here is simply, do we have the time? Can we afford all the time it takes that you yourself describes to get through the bureaucracy, the procurement, the, the, the endless constraints on what builders and what architects can do with existing buildings? Can we afford the time that's going to take? Is it simply not really feasible to think in these localized smaller terms when we've got a housing crisis of the kind that we're currently looking at? Well, I think, Eve, it's, it's a, that's a very valid question that you're raising, but there's actually, I haven't done this research myself, but I understand there are about 30,000 vacant properties uh, in, in Dublin. And that probably doesn't include upper floors, where there are vast numbers of, of floors and spaces which could be refurbished. And in answer to your question of, of is there the time, of course there's the time, because you don't start at one end of the city and then finish in the other. The idea is that you do this all at the same time. Um, the procurement I was mentioning was to do with the fact that it, it, it takes a long time for public projects to get through procurement, but actually then they're often blocked by the Department of Housing, which is separate to say Dublin City Council. And Dublin City Council's housing projects all have to go through um, the rigours of the Department of Housing and comply with their norms on costs. And as I've said, I think they need to catch up a little bit with what it actually is costing at the moment to build. Um, and, and there have been quite a number of, I think, bits of false information floating around about how cheaply you can build. It's actually, it's an expensive thing to build. You do need to spend money on it. And it's the same, the, the, I'm very pleased to see that um, energy refit thing coming up yesterday, because that will give an awful lot of people the possibility of doing things. But there should be the same kind of incentives for people to take derelict buildings. And I believe there is a, a new incentive just about to come out for people to take derelict buildings and to begin to refurbish them. That, you know, people in acting for their own selves do not need to go through any procurement except just to decide, but they will need flexibility from the banks. Because sometimes if you had a group of four um, uh, families, say, trying to buy two Georgian houses side by side and split them up between them, there would be enormous difficulties in trying to get a financial institution to agree that that was a sensible thing to do. Why? Absolutely no reason at all. So I think there's a lot of um, things that government could do to start unblocking these log jams. You can't say that it's down to the city council, whose guidelines have been totally flouted and ignored, to the vast irritation of all of us architects who've spent years spending time trying to say, of course, you should have double aspect things. Of course, apartments should be generous and people should be able to live in apartments for the whole of their lives. Not to say that they can only live in apartments when they're 20. Um, so all of that needs to take a, a significant knock on the head. Could, could, Thanks, I, yeah, could I just make one small point uh, about, about, about that? Uh, uh, um, Dublin City Council's draft development plan for the city uh, has a section in it, or several mentions of it, 
uh, of the whole issue about the upper floors of buildings. And if you walk around the streets, you can see that for yourselves, that a lot of the upper floors are vacant. And I think that, you know, that all of the stuff that's in the development plan about the upper floors of buildings will remain just platitudes unless Dublin City Council itself sets up a task force which would be representative of, say, the Conservation Department, the City Architects Department, the Fire, uh, the fire Brigade and others who are involved and turn it into a one-stop shop where mm -hmm. people who own properties and who might want to convert the upper floors into residential are encouraged to do so and the red carpet is rolled out for them. That's what's needed. Okay, a task force, Owen O'Connor let's bring you in quickly there. Yeah, just very quickly. I mean, I absolutely agree with uh, what Valerie uh, was saying about using um, existing, uh, renovating existing properties. But I think, again, this comes down, a lot of this comes down to uh, the fact that, you know, speculation is going to, um, you know, a property owner who like have a lot of, you have a lot of money and can afford to just sit on the land until it appreciates in value are able to do this. And we don't have the kind of punitive sort of taxes that we need. Uh, or the compulsory purchase orders that we, we would want. That's really what we need to do. It should be a kind of a use it or lose it uh, basis. Um, and, uh, and, and we've also seen uh, in recent times examples where um, developers have actually lobbied to have, uh, like in the case with Shivers, uh, the Shivers site um, in Dublin 7, where they lobbied to uh, rezone the land for housing, uh, saying that they had, they, with, with a big sob story, that they had heard about the housing crisis on John, Joe Duffy and they wanted to do something about it. Uh, and then they went on to just uh, sell it off. At a, they never actually built anything. Once they got it rezoned, they, they, the, 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 um, the price of it went, went up and they were able to make massive profits. So um, yeah, again, I think that the profit motive is massive here and the stage really needs to be uh, you know, intervening in a massive way in order to, to stop this kind of thing. Thanks, Owen. And I'm just, I know we want to get to the, the audience questions, but Owen Keegan, I know you want to come in again on that. And this again goes back to the limits and the compromise around what the City Council can do and can't do, surely. Well, I think Fra Frank is right, and I think Valerie's right. I mean, there is an urgent need uh, to uh, tackle the factors that prevent the uh, re refurbishment uh, of upper stories. Now, I... I my own view is that, by the way, there is a kind of a one-stop shop, but there are significant extra costs associated with that compared with, say, new build. And I think it's going to call for a higher level of financial incentive mm. to reward that. And just on the issue of, I mean, with these figures about 30,000 vacant properties, I mean, I don't know if that's the, the census figure that's being bandied around, but I know we took the census figure in one local area, uh, local electoral area, and went to all the properties that had been reported as vacant by the census enumerator. And in a very high proportion of those, there were legitimate reasons by the household. I mean, they were not available to be reused. So I, I think that figure is, is constantly banding around on it. I just don't believe there is that, that number. There were, and as I say, we, 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 we tried to find out by interviewing neighbors, et cetera, why was it vacant? And there were people in hospital, there were people away, there were people studying down. The, there were a whole range of quite legitimate reasons why the houses would have been vacant for a short period while the, the enumerator visited. So I, I just think that we just need to be careful there. But certainly I would support the case for much more generous incentives to encourage uh, the refurbishment and reintroduction to active use of upper stories. Great, thank you, Owen. And I can, I'm can i gonna go to questions now, but uh, 
uh, Pori Gates there with a, a question, which is, I think, rhetorical. Should on board canola be abolished before it does any further damage? Uh, Pori, we might leave that uh, unanswered but implied. Um, but uh, I want to go um, uh, to some questions, three questions which all touch really not so much on the, the, the building infrastructure of Dublin, but on the aesthetics of the city. Uh, and I've got uh, Shane Diffley asking about public fountains and public spaces. Um, I've got Mike O'Dell, I think also his second question there, falling out of love with the city is part of the kind of wear and tear that is, is mismanaged of the existing fabric. Uh, and he's referring to the historic paving at Castle Street uh, having been removed and the kind of bollards and signposts that are put up without attention uh, to the, the background aesthetics. And uh, there was a, a third person, Kevin Byrne, I think, um, from the, uh, who's the secretary of the South Georgian Core Residents Association, asking about the uh, yellow beige asphalt uh, that Dublin City's Council is putting everywhere. Now we've seen in recent years, the efforts that uh, other countries are making in managing the aesthetics of the city environment better. Uh, the campaign in parts of Spain, for example, to retain traditional uh, street signs and shop signs, uh, or the campaign recently in France, in Paris, um, to remove the kind of detritus that we find crowding up the streets where repairs are done poorly uh, and so on. Now, we could see this as a kind of preciousness, I suppose, but I wonder if any of the panel would like to talk about this aspect of the city, which isn't strictly about housing or accommodation or commercial investment, but is about the everyday environment that we walk through. David, having worked on the 18th century city and we've inherited an 18th century city and we still hang on to the aesthetics in many areas of the city of that period. Is this something that matters to you? I think you're muted, David. I think as we're all now uh, encouraging, encouraged to, to use our bikes and our feet, uh, the state of the streets has it, it, got a new priority. But I think it's very interesting if you go back to the debates of um, 100 years ago. I mean, there was uh, certainly in, in some of that, that writing that, that a very conscious sense of, of, of the, um, the major streets as almost theatrical elements. Uh, and that the, their uh, design, their redesign, their uh, ad adaptation has to be seen in holistic terms. Uh, and I think that's very much lost, but, or was lost, in a lot of the kind of um, uh, design principles of uh, a generation ago. Uh, but I mean, certainly this idea of the, the city beautiful was uh, very strong in uh, the kind of the early planning era. Now, it was very much, you might say, a view of a of an elite group. And one of the things that I'm struck by in, in the debate this evening is we look back at that early pl pl planning history, it is very much a, a top-down affair and the, the kind of the, the value placed on uh, transparency and democracy and, and if you like, the, the view from uh, within the city uh, was very subordinated. And going back to a point that Owen Keegan was making about you know how he feels that the, the kind of endorsement of uh, pushing the city to, into the suburbs and the garden city movement with Abercrombie was a terrible mistake uh, and that really uh, there should have been a much uh, stronger case made for uh, strengthening uh, development and redevelopment within the city proper. Uh, and it is true that really throughout that, the, uh, that era of 
Abercrombie and O'Rourke and so on, uh, it is city councillors, it is uh, the housing committee, uh, people like Tom Kelly, who are making that case for strengthening the city. In other words, to some extent, it is uh, the planning view of pushing things out, and it is to some extent the elected representatives who are trying to defend uh, the, 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 uh, the inner city itself. Thanks, David. Owen, are you, Owen Keegan, you're trying to come in again there. Uh, well, just on the yellow beige tarmac, yes. I'm not a fan of that, but it was a temporary intervention under COVID. And as if decision, as I expect, will be made to say uh, maintain uh, uh, those those footpath extensions or whatever, um, there will be a whole new uh, scheme in, in Suffolk Street. All those it will be replaced with a proper materials. So um, that's only a temporary measure, um, and uh, it, it won't be there permanently. <clears throat> You heard it here, he's promised a temporary measure. Frank? Yeah, I just wanted to share a picture of College Green. <laughs> well, can I do that? You can. Oh, you are, are you, you're screen sharing. Um, have you got it set up, Frank, for us to yeah. see? <clears throat> it should appear in a minute. Sorry. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you can... <laughs> There it is. Have you got it there? We're not seeing it yet. Keep trying, though. Sometimes it's a bit slow to appear. Can you describe what we're going to be looking at, Frank? Well, just I mean, while it's you know, College, Green, College Green is the great architectural set piece of Dublin. And I took a photograph of it a couple of months ago. And, like, it's just a complete visual disaster area, um, you know, with all these poles and signs and, and markings and everything else um, is all wrong. I mean, Dublin is the most cluttered city in Europe for a signage. And we've just got to um, uh, cut it down. I mean, you know, I think that the draft development plan for the city should have an objective to reduce street clutter by at least 50% over the next six years. And I mean, you know, that would just free up so much space and it would make the whole place look so much better. And I cannot for the life of me see, I know there's a plan for College Green and, and so on, but, you know, really um, at the end of the day, that hasn't been realised yet. It hopefully will be realised at some point. But in the meantime, let's get rid of some of this stuff. It's just awful. Thank you, Frank. We might, If your picture appears, that'll be great. But in the meantime, I think a lot of... People are obviously coming in with things that chime with that and indeed mentioning, as a couple of people are mentioning, the College Green Plaza situation. Uh, and, and Valerie, do you want to come quickly on that? There's, there's some other questions we need to get to. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Um, if I can, am I muted? Yeah, you're fine. Um, just very quickly, the, the thing about space is public space, which I think is essential to, to think about, is that it's a three-dimensional thing. So the walls of the space are actually as important as the floor of the space. And I totally agree with all the comments that we made about the preciousness of materials. And actually, they are generally protected in our development plan uh, and, and conserved under, under you know, protected pieces of city. But if you think of materiality of walls, the thing that is the biggest influence, to my mind, on how a city looks are the windows. Absolutely. And we've allowed our city to be full of plastic windows and the wrong kind of windows. And actually, something that could be a huge thing to do would be to target areas. And again, this is a city council thing that could be done with a, with a limited fund, just to put together a, a, a sort of a, a target on various places to say, OK, in this year, we're going to target such and such a street and we're going to offer everybody who has plastic windows the money to put the windows back the way they were. 
and let's deal with drafts, let's deal with traffic noise, let, we can do all of those techno technologically now. But that whole thing of having the three-dimensionality of the spaces confirmed by having the walls made proper again is a huge impact on city visibility and, and yeah, visual, yeah. visual quality of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and Valerie, I'm just going to come back there briefly because, I mean, one of the tensions that we're looking at presumably is that a lot of us are very invested in what you talked about which is a village identity that the local the small the familiar uh, and and a city that carries its heritage and and, and wears it on its sleeve um, but can we always square that with the fact that Dublin is a global city and a huge commercial and trading city I mean how do you personally deal with that tension when you're thinking about design it's it's very difficult actually, and you're you're right to, to pick it out. And I think um, if you look at the number of people who actually live in the centre of Dublin, it's much less than it is in other cities. And again, that's partly to do with who lives where, who's living on upper floors. Can you make fantastic apartments? And a lot of it comes down to affordability. And we, we I know Owen uh, O'Canavan was making that point earlier, and I totally agree with all of those points. We we have to find ways of making it possible, and it will require a certain amount of incentivization to make people live properly in the, middle of, uh, in the middle of the city. And to do that, we will need some incentives. We'll also need some pilot projects that can be small, but they could also be bigger. And we could find ways of showing people how it could be that you could make a fantastic family apartment mm. on the fifth floor of something in College Green, for example. Why not? Um, mm. If you were in Paris, you would have people looking out over the centre of all of their main spaces and enlivening them at night and so on. I really think it has to be a little bit of... of incentives to help people do it and then to buy things to be able to buy things floor by floor it's very hard to do that here so there's a lot of things that central government needs to pick up on and i i know i've spoken to, to many of them about this and nothing seems to happen except another policy comes out to say we should be doing this it needs people to be actually just told do this get mm. the bags all the mm. money that was you know that we lost during the banking crisis it's all been made back again that's all brilliant but we actually need to see some benefit as citizens not just to the, the 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 investor front. Exactly, and I noticed a few questions are coming in on uh, on strategies uh, such as the vacancy tax. You know, are we beginning to to put the pressure where it's really needed in terms of the commercial lobbyists in the city? But I want to come on to two questions that have come in about priorities for planning and group them together. Uh, Neve McGowan, University of Limerick, who's written brilliantly recently on gender and safety in the city, is asking about responsibilities to people who are disadvantaged in some way, uh, or who are frail, or who need protection in the city. And, and obviously, with recent violence, both racist violence and gender violence, that is a priority, surely, for the way we think about the new plan. Uh, and Deirdre Joyce, who is an expert in uh, urban sustainability, is also asking, what are the priorities for sustainability in view of climate catastrophe? And uh, obviously, Frank, you've written at length about this in uh, your, your recent book on, are we looking enough at, at uh, the barrage that we need to have uh, in the river, for example, are we really thinking about that terrifying map of Dublin, which shows so much of the low-lying areas underwater? Now, obviously, the civic plan is going to have responsibilities first and foremost to what's already here and what's needed short-term, housing in particular. But other things we need to be thinking about, both in terms of public safety and in terms of sustainability and uh, protection from climate catastrophe, that we should be looking at with more urgency. I don't know who wants to 
Well, uh, could I, I go ahead, Frank? Just quickly make a point about that. I mean, obviously, it depends on on the extent to which the Arctic region melts. Uh, that is that's one of the fundamental things that we have to keep an eye on because that's the canary in the coal mine in relation to the, uh, the uh, global warming and and the climate emergency. Um, and if sea levels do rise by anything like what's projected, then you know obviously measures will have to be taken and. You know, this is mentioned in the draft development plan, but there's, as far as I know, there is no plan other than, you know, to build a wall here and build a wall there. And sometimes when you build a wall, as Owen Keegan knows very well, you know, the residents then object because it's blocking their views of the sea and so on and so forth. So there's, a, there's all of those kind of problems. But, you know, for example, on in, in the case of Sandymount, I mean, I think Sandymount could be protected. Uh, by, um, and it is in the front line, as well as Clontarf on the other side, uh, but Sandyman could be protected if you built an embankment um, uh, uh, on the seaward side of the existing um, promenade, um, which would include um, a two-way cycle track as well as a walking, a walking area. I mean, you know, there are, there are win-win situations in this as well. So, you know, ultimately we might have to build things like a big uh, uh, marine booms in Dublin Bay to deflect so storm surges and stuff like that. I mean, it's not, this is not for the faint-hearted. I mean, it's, and, uh, and it is something that could quite easily happen if the Arctic really melts mm. as much as it is now, at the moment. Owen, you try, Owen O'Canavan. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I think Frank is, is, is right and it's not, <laughs> It's not um, really nice to be thinking about that the, the necessity for those kinds of uh, what you'd call mitigation uh, measures. Uh, but I think we have to look at what we're doing now and, and from a state perspective, and actually, again, something that would have a massive impact on people's lives here. Um, I, I, I'm going to talk about, I think, two, two, two things, uh, which is... Um, retrofitting and and transport and i think we've just seen the um the new government retrofit plans come out which um give um i, th I think half of the, the half of the if i remember correctly um value of a retrofit grant to the uh, person seeking it basically so they have to st stump up a huge amount of money themselves in order to be able to actually retrofit their, their homes again this is being paid paid for by partly by carbon taxes which everybody everybody will pay so in effect, you will have the poorest people paying for the retrofits of the people who can afford it. Um, and so I think, again, this from a state perspective, this should be, you know, the full cost of, of the retrofit. And, you know, it could be paid back over time uh, with the difference in, in, in people's energy bills falling. And then in, in terms of public transport, um, it's the case in many European cities now that there's free, free public transport. And I think we really have to start talking about free public transport as a major priority. Now, obviously, you couldn't make it free uh, at the moment uh, here. Um, uh, you should, we should start moving toward in that direction, um, while at, as, at the same time massively expanding uh, capacity, uh, building Metro North, building more, uh, you know, putting more buses on the road and, and so on. Um, but that's really something that would make the city a huge, uh, much more livable, um, you know, more safer for cyclists as well, you know, because of car, car, cars on the road. Um, and I think those two two things are, are massively important uh, if, if uh, you know, to, to actually do our part in reducing our emissions so that we don't get to a stage where we're building uh, seawalls and, and, and that kind of thing. Although it does look like we're 
heading in in in, in that direction. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. It certainly does, and and thank you, Owen. And uh, I mean, so many great questions and comments coming in. Um, we're not going to have time to get to a lot of these issues, unfortunately. But I do want to not pass over uh, a question that's come in. It's touched on by several people, but Ema Riley has put it very succinctly. Uh, how do we achieve sensible uh, urban density? Uh, is the only choice between high-rise buildings? or uh, knocking and rebuilding a lot of the low rise uh, uh, accommodation and, and housing that we have to achieve this density. Now we've discussed the, the refurbishment options. Um, have we talked enough about high rise? I'm interested to think back to, um, to David Dixon, really talking about the kind of visionary individuals who drove some of Dublin's development earlier in the 20th century. Um, what happens today when we get people who might be considered or might consider themselves visionary individuals who want to build not only high rise, but towers, I'm thinking of West Point, West Point plan, for example, on a scale that Dublin simply has not seen. We've seen how London's accommodated uh, height on this, this kind of grandeur and this scale. But we haven't had it in Dublin for the reasons that we all know. Is it time to think differently about height in Dublin? Well, I don't personally, I don't think so, because um, I think that one of the great values of the city and one of the things that makes it so attractive is that it has a human scale, that it has that intimacy uh, that was brought to life by Joyce uh, 100 years ago in his great book. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't lose that lightly. Um, and I go back to Valerie's point about Paris and the roofscape of Paris, that no matter where you are in the city, if you're at a high level, you look out over the rooftops of the 18th and 19th centuries, really, uh, with some, one or two minor, one or two exceptions, like the Tour Montparnasse, for example. Um, but, you know, we don't, I don't think we need to do that. I'm as much opposed to suburban sprawl as anybody else. I, I wrote about the way in which Dublin was leapfrogging all over Leinster, uh, back during the last boom period. Um, and so I have no grow for suburban sprawl at all, and I think it should be halted. But equally, I think that the, the colonisation of the countryside for urban housing uh, in the form of one so-called one-off houses is another uh, mm. disgraceful thing that is still going on. Um, so, you know, like in Paris, there's 2.2 million people living in, this, in the centre within the peripherique. And they are mostly living in buildings that are no more than five to eight stories. I don't see anything wrong with that as a as a density, as a as a height level for the city. But some of the schemes that have been sanctioned by Board Panola are horrifically over dense. Um, I mean, you know, in some cases, up to 600 units mm. per hectare. I mean, that is just outrageous. That's more that's higher than the densities that were involved in the tenements uh, when the tenements were around in the late 19th century. I mean, this is just unsustainable development and it's only for the benefit of the people who make money out of it. It has nothing to do with improving the city or with housing conditions in the city. Thank you, Frank. I think a lot of people will will hear you on that. Valerie, do you want to come in very quickly on just, that? Just very quickly, just to say that um, I think what's, what's interesting is the way people even are asking questions, because there isn't a single answer to any of this. No. And it requires a huge number of different answers to different situations. 
part of the problem with with suburbanization has been to do with everybody trying to work in the middle of Dublin. We've now discovered that we can actually work remotely. We don't need to all troop in from Mullingar or Kildare or wherever to to come to work in the centre of the city because remote working, we now know, does work. And there will be a range of blended working that will be very important for people over the next 20 years. We know that. It also goes back to what I've been saying in the book that I did, and just to, we're all talking about books that we've written these days, but the, the, the whole thing about trying to see how, how the countryside could also, in the towns that we already have, be enlivened and used. And, and, you know, that takes the pressure off the city. The whole thing about whether we have to have these high densities everywhere, I totally agree with Frank. Paris is a pretty good example of a place where we'd all want to live, or you'd feel you could live. And the densities there are appropriate to the way that people live. Now, I think there are probably places where you could build some high rise. I don't think they have to be in the middle of the historic city. And I think that's where things have gone a bit wrong. Mm -hmm. In other words, that the guidelines that were set up with perfectly good reason to say you should build high buildings here and lower buildings which respect the scale in other parts of Dublin. And I think that's where we need to go back to. Those, Those standards were only thrown out in the last couple of years. Um, by one by one minister at a certain point in time when when there was a lot of pressure coming on and I think you could quite easily just go back to say actually we don't need to do that um, and that's not to say you can't take buildings like we had in Ballymun and reclad them people in France have been doing wonderful jobs on that um, fantastic firm of architects called Lacaton and Vassell have done wonderful work in just taking old housing blocks of maybe 15, 20 stories high and recladding them, giving people winter gardens and so on. I just think we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be stopping looking at things that already exist. I'm not just talking about 18th century things, I'm talking about 19th century mm. and 20th century. We can use them all. We don't need to apply rigorous standards to everything. We can change the standards to suit the building. So I think that's how we solve it in piecemeal fashion. Thank you, Valerie. And I'm going to give a very quick last word to David Dixon. David, I'm tempted to ask you, have city plans ever worked? Well, not since Houseman, perhaps. Uh, but I was just going to, really to, to, to delve into history again for, for two, two reflections, really, from what we've all been uh, hearing. One is, you know, the idea of the high rise in Dublin isn't actually something very new. I mean, there have been advocates, uh, certainly one particularly, I think it was Frank Gaffney in the 1940s, who envisaged a kind of a cluster of giant uh, New York-style skyscrapers almost in in central Dublin uh, as an answer to at least some of the social issues of the day. That idea didn't get very far. But a more serious point that I know others have made, uh, and to me, this kind of discussion makes it even more compelling, and that is the notion that part of the problem is at the very political centre and the absence of a guaranteed sort of voice for the city at the cabinet table. And the argument that has been made, there should be a minister, not necessarily for Dublin City, but for Dublin, however you define that. Uh, And it is, I suppose, one of the takeaway things from what I was saying earlier, going back to the 1920s, that there wasn't strong advocates for Dublin uh, in the 20s and the 30s. Yes, Lamasse certainly was, uh, but his focus was uh, fairly narrow. But this idea that, uh, you know, to get to cut through some of these issues uh, our, our contributors have been making, you do need very strong political pressure. Uh, and the higher it is, the more concentrated it is, and the more it can ride over those, uh, if you like, various vested interests that may lie out this, lay outside the city, but block great ideas, uh, I, I think would be, uh, would be great if we can move in that direction. Thank you, David. And we're almost back full circle to where we started. 
who should have power for these decisions and who does have power and why isn't it working? Um, I'm, I'm really sorry that we have to draw to a close. I want to reassure people because it's come up a couple of times that we would like in a future behind the headlines to do the same kind of discussion to talk about rural development, uh, because I think uh, that this is something that obviously is very much part of, of this um, uh, discussion uh, and needs to be uh, given some attention. But we must uh, draw to a close. And as always, I hope that this conversation will continue. It should continue in various forms. And let me thank uh, David, Valerie, Owen, the other Owen, and Frank. Thanks to everyone who's joined. I'm sorry we got through only a fraction of the questions, but they're much appreciated. So much interesting material has come through in the chat. Uh, and uh, so thank you to all. And thank you to the Trinity Longroom Hub team, especially Francesca and Aoife, as always, and to our sponsor, the Pollard Foundation. Uh, if you'd like to join us again, do check on the Trinity Longroom Hub website, particularly for the 15th of February, Tuesday. We have a new year, new media uh, discussion happening between media historian Adrian Bingham from the University of Sheffield and our own Mark Little, who's the media fellow at the Trinity Longroom Hub. You'll know him from his time at RTE. They're going to be in conversation with uh, Dr. Elspeth Payne of the Shula Democracy Forum about the questions that are facing the media in 2022. And that evening, the 15th of February in the evening, we're launching a new series on literature and resistance. And this will start with a panel discussion that's being run by Trinity's Center for Resistance Studies. Uh, it's gonna be very exciting. So if you would like to join online again, please register on, on the Hub website. Uh, I want to close, if I can just stretch your patience by quoting from Valerie Mulvin, uh, who said yesterday on Near FM Radio that we want Dublin to be a city, as she said, full of promise, and interest and intellect. Well, I hope that this evening's discussion has raised at least some thoughts about how the city can achieve those things. Uh, thanks again to our panelists. Thanks very much to all of you who have attended. The Do join us again very soon. Good night, everyone. And uh, stay Stepping safe. Towards the history of the Time Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism.